0: you have your Bibles with you, I want you to open up to 1 Peter. We're still in 1 Peter. In fact, we're just getting going, really. We're going to end chapter 1 today. We're looking at verses 22 through verse 25, and we're talking about love. That's right. The L word, as my six-year-old son Liam calls it. The L word. It's love. It wasn't too long ago, and I won't say whether it was his school or whether it was church or any of the other activities that he's a part of, but I I was told that uh, my son was kissing girls. Not just one, but numerous girls, and so I was told you might want to talk to your six-year-old son, and so I tried to keep a straight face. I said, I'll talk to him. I I brought him into the car, and I said, Liam, you got in trouble the other day for doing something, and immediately Liam... (laughs) looked down at the floor and said, uh-huh. I said, Liam, do you know what Dad wants to talk to you about? And he said, yeah, I, you're going to tell me I can't love. <laughs> I said, well, no, I want you to love. I just want you to do it a certain way. He goes, Dad, I love a lot of people. I said, I heard. <laughs> I heard. I said, I heard you You did something you're not supposed to or you shouldn't be doing, and we got to have a talk. And he said, Dad, I kissed a girl, I said. I know you did. He said. I kissed another girl. I said. I know. And then another girl. I said. I I know. <laughs> I know you did. And he said, Dad, I love smooching. <laughs> I said. Well, that's okay. Dad loves smooching too. But here's the thing, Liam. I said. You're not ready to be smooching, and I need you to stop smooching girls. And he said, Dad, question. I said, Son, I got an answer for you. He said, Am I in trouble because I smooched, smooched, or am I in trouble because I smooched a lot of different girls? Because I knew after I smooched the first, I shouldn't have smooched the other. And then I knew I shouldn't have smooched the other. (laughs) I'm trying my hardest not to laugh. And I said, Liam, listen, don't be smooching any girls, okay? No smooching right now. He says, But dad, I love them, all of them. I said, Liam, you don't even know what love means. But in his mind, love is an emotion. It is a feeling. He likes that feeling. So he, he's, don't worry, we've, we've got him on a smooching fast. He will not be smooching anymore, girls. If you have anywhere from five to seven, yes, I just said, that's the age range that Liam is guilty of smooching. Keep your daughters away from my son. <laughs> We hear the, the word in English, which just, it's a lot of different things are going to come to your mind. I always think of Pepe Le Pew. How many of you guys remember Pepe Le Pew? Yeah, a, lot of, a little French striped skunk cartoon who's constantly on the quest for love, but his skunk odor always stops him from finding love. He chases Penelope, the little black cat, but he can never, ever win her over. I remember thinking that I was in love, much like Liam. Of course, I wasn't starting as early as he was. <laughs> but I remember at 14 years old, or actually 13 years old, around the same age my daughter was, I had a girlfriend. When I say a girlfriend, we held hands, we walked around the recess field, and that, that meant we were serious. So my cousin didn't think that I should be with this girl, and he, he said, you gotta dump this girl, she's not right for you. And I said, I, look, Brent, I love this girl. goes you don't even know what love is I said I do and I love this girl he says well did she pass the love test and I think I've shared this with the congregation before I said what love test are you talking about he said the love test you know you really love someone if you're willing to die for them I said man that's heavy (laughs) I'm 13 years old he said so would you be willing to die for I said let me think about it for a minute I got to gotta process this so I sat there both my brother and my cousin waited patiently for my answer and I said I'm not sure what this means I'm not willing to die for but I think I'd be willing to take a beating for is that love (laughs) he says no that's not love so I broke up with her the next day at school and I just said look I'm willing to take a beating I'm not willing to die she didn't understand it but it's the love test right So man, when we talk about love, we think of so many different things. I can remember my dad telling me, you don't even know what that word means because I would throw it around all the time for different things. He was right, I didn't. Many people don't understand what love really means. One of the scariest passages in all the Bible is John 13, 35. It says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Man, one of the most painful facts of life is that the people of God do not always get along with each other. You would think that those who walk in hope and holiness would be able to walk in harmony, but that is not always the case. It's not always the truth. From God's point of view, there's only one body. We learned that in Ephesians when we preached through Ephesians. But but what we see with human eyes is a church divided, and not just divided, but sometimes at war. There is today a desperate need for spiritual unity. I hate it when I hear a professing Christian say they love Jesus but they just don't love the church. Now look, sometimes the church doesn't seem to be anything like the church that we read about in the Bible. But for those that always say that, go really go really study history because the early church was just as bad with just as many problems. Sometimes it seems like it's become more of an institution influenced more by the world than the word. Sometimes it might even feel like it's full of hypocrites. How about all the people in the church that are mean and that are hurtful? And trust me when I say this, I probably know this one more than any of you. (laughs) I'm a pastor, and guess what? Sheep bite. I have experienced nasty, mean Christians before. Sometimes it feels like the church is irrelevant to reaching out to the world with the gospel. Sometimes it even feels like the church church itself is the biggest obstacle to reaching the world. And so people will opt for more privatized expressions of Christianity. And you know what? Here's the deal. A lot of what I just said about the church, there's, there's truth to it. Church is full of imperfect people. Let me clarify this for you. Let me just throw it on the table. Your pastor is an imperfect person. (laughs) Really, trust me, ask my wife. I am an imperfect person. I will fail you guys over and over and over because I am I'm not perfect. But I can lead you to the one who is. You guys are not perfect. Sometimes I have to remind people of that when they come into my office. We're not perfect. The church is full of people who make mistakes and mess up. But still, and listen carefully, are those legitimate reasons for professing believers to abandon the church as a whole? Here's what the Bible would say, absolutely no. Instead of abandoning the church, here's what we need to do. We need to seek to regain a correct understanding of the nature and the purpose of God's church, and then we need to live that out faithfully during our time here on earth. God has told us to be a part of a church, to be committed to a church. And I'm not saying there's not a time to find a new church. I've heard pastors say that. If you've come to this church, you're called to stay at this church till the day you die. I'm gonna be a pastor that says, I don't believe that. I I do think there are times where people need to find a new church. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's definitely a time you need to leave the church if you feel the church isn't preaching the Bible. But again, that's not giving up on the church. Peter, literally, in in his epistle here, he's got so much to say about local churches, and he begins by showing that the New Testament church is a body of people who have been born again through the living word of God. The church is a body characterized by love for each other. If there's one place love should exist, it should be in the church, I'm not telling you to love and embrace sin. Don't, don't misquote me today. And if you've been here for just a few weeks, you know that I will preach against sin. I will preach this Bible. I'll preach it verse by verse, and the Bible has a whole lot to say about unholy living. But Peter's gonna tell you that if there's any place love should exist, it should be in the church. In fact, Psalm 68, verse six says, God settles the solitary in a home. I love that. It means that God is in the business of taking the isolated, the solitary, the alone person and bringing them into a community and a family. That is what we are about. Everybody wants to belong. We live in a love-starved world, and the church should be a place where love is found. Love should be on display in the church. Peter's argued that we as believers are all, on this, we're all in the same family, so we need to be going in the same direction. And again, I'm not telling you that there are going to be... You do not have to agree with me on every single detail. This is not what I'm preaching today. But we should be all going in the same direction, pursuing the same goal. And what is it that makes this possible? How can we as believers develop unity and community so we don't live lonely and hopeless lives? Well, Peter's going to give us three insights so look with me beginning at verse 22. And before we jump in, I'd like to pray. Lord, we just we want to magnify you and now, and we want to see your glory through your word by your spirit. That's what I'm asking for today. Give everyone here ears to hear beyond me and grant me, I pray, God, grant me to speak in the power of your great name. Guard me from error today. Keep me close to your word, advance your cause, magnify now your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 22, if you look with me, first insight is this. Believers need to be obedient to the truth. So look at, real quick, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Pause for one moment, real important here. Peter's hinting that our souls are purified through obedience. And the reason we fail to obey God so often is that our souls are not purified yet. So most of us think that purification happens, so so, so then we can obey. But Peter's adding to that thought and telling us that we are purified not only to obey, but that we are also purified by and through obedience. In fact, R.C. Sproul says it this way, the more our souls are involved in obedience, the greater the purification that occurs, and the more our souls are purified, the greater our obedience will be. He goes on to say this, this is not a vicious circle, but a glorious circle by which our obedience feeds purification. And symbiotically, purification feeds obedience. Listen, you can't be a student of God's word and not see the importance and emphasis on obedience. You can't. But here's the thing, too. In the Bible, you're going to read words from Jesus like this. He who has ears, let him hear. And then in the book of James, you're going to read, we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. There's a play on words here in the Greek between the verb to hear and the verb to obey. And follow me. I know I'm getting teachy, but follow me. This is important. The verb to hear in Greek comes from the, the English word acoustics, okay? And the verb that means to obey is, is the Greek word. And, again, I am a, uh, a C-plus Greek student, okay? <laughs> but the, the Greek word is hupiko, These two Greek words have a very similar root. The word to obey repeats the verb to hear and attaches to the preparatory word hupo, which in our English language is the prefix hyper. So when I was a boy, I was diagnosed with hyper, I was a hyperactive child. I was officially diagnosed with that. My parents absolutely hated and dreaded teacher-parent conferences. They would cry and they would argue, who's the parent that gets to go to Justin's teacher-parent conference? I was that child, I could not sit still in a seat. It's amazing that I can sit and preach to you for 30 minutes, (laughs) 50 minutes, an hour. It's amazing. (laughs) I was diagnosed as a hyperactive child. My activity was hyper. So in the Bible, what we're being commanded to do is to be hyper hearers. What does that mean when you read, and then you're gonna read things like to obey, What you're being told to do, whenever you see the word to obey, you need to obey this or obey that, you're being commanded to be a hyper-hearer. That's what the Bible's teaching you. God wants you not just to hear physically, but God wants you to hear spiritually. He wants your hearing to bring change to your behavior. Did you get that? He wants your hearing to bring change to your behavior. God wants your hearing to result in obedience. And what is Peter telling us to obey here in verse twenty-two? What's he telling us to obey? The truth. The truth. Some of us don't like the truth today. <laughs> the truth isn't tr- truth isn't a popular concept in our in our society. The world is actually very much against the truth. People don't want truth to be objective. Now I don't know if you've noticed lately, but we're seeing more and more hostility to the truth. This strong animosity towards truth. We don't like truth because we want to do whatever we want to do and we don't want to be held accountable. John chapter 8, verse 44, it says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There is a war on truth today. I'll tell you what, his use, the enemy, his use of lies make us doubt God's truth and it make us doubt God's word. Makes us doubt God's promises. In Hosea chapter four, verse six, it states, my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Truth is important. Truth is very important. Your mind is a battlefield. And when the devil is mentioned in the Bible, some people will think in their minds of this little comical, red-skinned, horned individual holding a pitchfork in his hand. Something like you would see in the costumes that we're accustomed to seeing at Halloween. That's what some people think of the devil. Now hear me out today, church. The truth is, the devil is real. It's why Peter will later call him your adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is not somebody you're doing this to. Here, kitty, kitty. I had a little cat in my back. Well, it was a big cat, a really ugly cat, according to Liz, but I thought it was kind of cute. And I was trying to get him to come. Here, kitty, 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 kitty. We're not talking about that kind of cat. We're talking about a predator that wants to destroy you, and he's going to do it by deceiving you and, not, and getting you to not believe in the truth. One of his favorite tactics is to tell us lies, and he'll, he'll tell us lies, and he will make them so convincing that we hold them for truth. 2 Corinthians 10.3 confirms this it says for though we live in the world we do not wage war as the world does we wage war through God's word listen to me church but it's not it's not enough just to simply to hear his word we need to obey his truth and this kind of obedience is only going to happen through the spirit that's what Peter's saying here none of us can ever obey God's truth without the power the grace and the assistance of the Holy Spirit you can't do it on your own and Peter's not teaching against what Paul teaches, that we are saved through faith. He isn't overlooking faith. He's actually defining what faith is here. He's even reiterating what he's already said in chapter 1, verse 2, that they were saved according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus. The Bible's clear. Obedience is a synonym for faith and faith is not a human-initiated work of obedience. Do you know this is why we here at at New Heights Church we're very intentional about preaching God's word. We're always intentional about going verse by verse because I'll tell you, there's this temptation for church leaders right now to find ways to relate to the world. Do you know how sick and tired I am of going to church growth conferences and that's what we start out with? Let's get a panel board up here of these pastors that have grown these mega churches and they're going to give you ways that you can connect and relate to the world. And before I, before I get off on my, my high horse here so you don't think I'm being super religious, I'm not saying that everything's bad. And the, I actually think some of the intentions of those people sitting up on the stage are actually good because they, just, they have a big heart for lost people and they want to see lost people come to Jesus. I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing, right? We should, we should want to see people come to Jesus. I want to see these seats full. Man, on Wednesday I walk. I pray up here and I'll walk and I pray over these seats and, and my prayer is truly that lost people come to Jesus. And I've done, I, I, I do some things that I, I want to make people comfortable in coming to church. I want to I connect to the younger generation. Enos and I have discovered something in the last few weeks. We're, we're getting old. We think we're young. We think we're cool and hip. Enos is looking at me so he just discovered this right now. <laughs> You know, our young staff keeps telling us, that's not cool, Pastor Justin. Whatever, it was cool in 2001. <laughs> so. some, of it's, some of the intentions, I'm not telling, telling you that we as a church can't do some things that maybe will be appealing to the community. Let's, let's try to get as many people in here as we can. But it's not, that's not always bad, but at New Heights, here's the deal, we're committed to doctrine. We make sure that our Sunday sermons are God's word. We go verse by verse because we live in a world where biblical illiteracy is rampant and we need to learn to love the word. And and we know that to truly accomplish our purpose, it'll be the word of God that does the work of God by the spirit of God in the lives of the people of God. You like that one? (laughs) Listen to me. If we're going to accomplish anything, we're going to accomplish our purpose as a church, it'll be through the, the Word of God that does the work of God by the Spirit of God in the lives of the people of God. Why do we preach expository sermons? I've been asked this before. Why do you do verse by verse? Why do we connect everything to the text? Why do we point out nouns, pronouns, word meanings, all that stuff? Why take so much of our week and study the text? Because the purpose behind everything that we do here is to see what Peter is talking about here in this verse, to see the purification of souls. And the purification of of the soul comes through obeying the truth of God's word through the Spirit of God. And there are no substitutes or shortcuts for that. None. The way to the heart is through the mind, so I won't be a part of a church that's producing mindless Christianity because it won't produce purification of the soul. I gotta stand before God one day. And he's not gonna care if I filled this seat up with really fun gimmicks and I put on these incredible sermon series that made people feel good come going out. He, he, I'm gonna stand before God one day. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer to Him what I preach, and I want to make sure I stand before Him and I was committed to His Word, and that's what we're gonna do here. We're gonna follow God's plan for the church, not man's. I refuse to only preach. I, or I refuse to on, to only preach the parts of God's Word that the world wants to hear. New Heights Church will not tailor our methods so that people can get what they want out of church. I'm not in the business of making sure everyone's preferences are met, and when I said yes to being in the ministry, it was not to win a popularity contest. Nobody prepared me for that, by the way, at at Bible College. Nobody said the more you preach God's word, the more you're going to get all kinds of hate mail, people trolling you. Is that what they call it now, trolling? Man, the more we preach God's word, it's like we put a big target on our back. We'll bring it. Because I said yes to preaching God's word no matter what. I said yes to God's plan for reaching the lost. And for generating spiritual growth amongst God's people. And I'll tell you what, the Bible gave the plan for the church. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. He goes, The blueprint is not a matter of rocket science or Madison Avenue technology. It's a blueprint that God guarantees will not be fruitless. It is accomplished by the method of proclaiming the word of God, which, as Peter says here, changes lives and purifies souls through the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that something? It's what we're going to do. We're committed to doctrine, we're committed to good teaching. What this book has to say is better than anything I can come up with. Anything, it has the power to transform hearts and minds, and that's why we're committed to it. Second insight, second part of verse 22, 22b through 23, he says this, So having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. What does sincere love mean? What does it mean when he, he tells you you need to be sincere? How many of you guys hate something fake? I loved it when I was little, I loved fake stuff because I loved the price. When I started working at 15 years old, I didn't want to go buy real Nikes because it was expensive. I wanted to buy cheap stuff. So being the son of a missionary, I got a chance to go buy the fake stuff all the time. I loved buying the fake Nikes, the fake Air Jordans, the fake Rolexes. But here's the problem. Fake is fake. (laughs) It is. It's like, you know, I took Liam into a house the other day. He had to, He got out early. Liz was still teaching, so he had to come on some house calls with me. We walk into a house. Liam sees a bowl of fruit. He runs to it, takes a big bite. Number one, we, we're teaching him. You can't just help yourself to anybody's food. And she says, no, no, it'll be okay. He takes a bite. It's not okay. It's plastic fruit. And Liam is screaming because his teeth hurt and the face that he had just this excitement he was going to go by take a big old bite of an apple and instead he got a plastic apple the look on his face nobody likes anything fake right so peter's saying your love needs to be sincere sincere comes from the latin word sin with "sin," which is without and then sarah which is cracks love love without hidden agendas or false motives Later on, it also came to mean this, without wax. And some of you are thinking, what in the world? We're supposed to love people without wax? Yes, we are. Listen here. Let your love be without wax. Okay, in ancient times, porcelain dealers, uh, statue makers, they would use wax to fill in their mistakes. And so you would, uh, can you imagine taking, making a statue, spending hours and hours working on this thing, uh, and then later, a little arm or a finger or a nose or a, uh, what, an ear falls off, right? And you have two options. You can start all over again or you can get some marble dust and wax and you can fashion or fake this uh, that piece, whatever piece fell off. And to you, it looks really good. The problem is, these people in those days would know that some of the merchants would do that, and as they were making their way through and checking to see if they wanted to buy something, they would hold it up to the light, the sunlight, and if there was a crack in it, it would shine through, and they would know it's, it's, there's something fake in it, and they wouldn't buy it. So Peter's telling you, you need to love with a sincere love. It can't be fake. You better not have hidden, uh, a hidden agenda or a hidden motive. You guys can see that from a mile away. How many of you guys have someone in your life you just you just know sometimes when they're being nice to you that there, there's an agenda? There's a motive there. They want something. It's not sincere. Um, I never get that, by the way. But some people, you experience that, right? Maybe maybe you're well off and God has blessed you financially and, and uh, somebody's never been nice to you, but all of a sudden their car broke down and they are just reaching out to you. Let me take you out to McDonald's. Let me... There's, there's an insincere uh, motive, and you guys can spot it from a mile away. D.L. Moody says, you can be a good doctor without loving your patients. You can be a great lawyer without loving your clients, but you cannot be a good Christian without love. So to live in holiness is to love people, and to love people is to be holy. In fact, the essence of sin is selfishness. Really? Peter's making a shift from holy living to holy loving. He moves from how Christians should relate to the world to how Christians should relate to one another. And here's what I want you to notice. This is important. Peter puts this in, he, he puts this in the imperative mood. Peter's not telling them, I think it'd be nice if you would love. Or love if you can. Love till you you just can't do it anymore. Because let's be honest, some people are hard to love. <laughs> right? No, it's an imperative, it's a command. Peter's writing, I am commanding you to love one another earnestly. I should have tried this in Bible college. It took me three years to convince Liz to go on a date. I wonder how it would have worked if I had just tried this at first. Come at her with the imperative. Liz, I am commanding you to love me. Liz would have looked at me and said, I'm commanding you to get lost. It wouldn't have worked, and it wouldn't have worked because, again, when we think of love, we often think of it as an emotion. We think of love as simply a feeling or a sentiment, and you cannot command someone to love like that. You can't do it; doesn't work like that. But love is not just an emotion. Peter could command this, and he can command it here, and this is why: because there's a kind of love that does not depend on emotion. But it's an act of the will, it's something you choose to do. You don't necessarily feel like doing it, you choose to do it. You see, in the English language, we have one word to describe love. My wife hates it, because I'll, in one sentence, I'll say, I love you, Liz, and then in the next sentence, I'm saying, I love the Chicago Cubs. Well, the Reds, I love the Reds. By the way, four games, four games, winning streak. <laughs> I love the Reds, I'll say, or I love the Bengals. She says, no, you love me, you like them. Well, there's just one word to describe loves in the English language. But in the Greek language, they had four words to describe the four different kinds of love. There was a passionate love. That is the the eros love. This is the physical love between sexes. Eros love is the, the base love of a man that arises from his own inner passion. Sometimes this love is focused upon good. Other times it is focused upon bad. There's the, an affectionate love. Again, I was a C plus Greek student, so bear with me. The stargay star love. This is the kind of love that exists between a parent and a child or between loyal citizens and trustworthy leaders. By the way, we never see this type of love used in the New Testament. Number three, there is an endearing love. The love that cherishes, this is phileo love, this is the love of a husband and wife for each other, of a brother for a brother, of a friend for a friend. It's the love that cherishes, it holds someone or something so close to their heart. Peter uses this this love in, in this passage, by the way, but he also uses another word. There's this selfless and sacrificial love or agape love. Agape love is the love of the mind, of the reason, of the will. It's the love that goes so far that it's going to love a person even if he doesn't deserve to be loved. It actually loves the person who is utterly unworthy and unlovable. And Peter, Peter uses both. He, two times he uses the word love, but he uses two different Greek words. Again, same word in our English language, but two different words in the Greek. So you'll notice in verse 22, for a sincere brotherly love. That's phileo love. It refers to brotherly love or the love of a friend. But look at the second time, the last part of verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's a different word for love that Peter uses. It's the word agape. So this is why Peter can command to love because it's not an emotional kind of love. It's a sacrificial kind of love. God can tell you to love even when you don't feel like loving. It's a love that gives, seeks the highest good of the object of love. I have met couples as a pastor who tell me I don't love my spouse anymore. I've heard this. Well, you can choose to love them. You can be obediently loving because God commands you to love. Even, even, some of them will say, look, it's almost like this person is my enemy now. And I'll say, well. (laughs) You can still choose, even if love is not a passing emotion, it's a continual devotion. You can make the choice to love. Feelings aren't always there, but you make a choice to love that person. You make a decision. It's a matter of the will, not not to think of yourself, but of others. That's love, right? I guarantee you, if I I meet people here in this church that have been married 60-plus years, they're going to tell me, there are days that they don't have that feeling, you know? There are days that they have to choose to love, but they make the choice to do it, and that's why at sixty years they can say we're still married, still going strong. Love is uh, love is a choice; it's a matter of the will here. So Peter's saying we already share that kind of the filial love because we're brothers and we're sisters. We share the second kind of love because he commands us to show it as an act of our will, even even when we don't feel like it. And then there's something else too. There's another word, earnestly. Do you know that it's an athletic term? It means to stretch out a muscle to its limit, to its capacity. My dad was a weightlifter. I think he had small man syndrome. <laughs> he was shorter than me. I'm only 5'6. My dad was like 5'5. Five five. He was a police officer, then a lawyer, then a pastor, then a missionary, and a Bible college professor. He did a lot in his life. I remember he would have this old weight bench that he built in our garage and he would go in and anytime somebody was getting rid of their weights uh, they would give them to him so he had this huge collection of all kinds of different weights and I remember he would st- he held the record in Washington state for the most most bench press that was when he was a police officer so all the different police officers sheriff departments would have contests every year and he was the record holder and I would go in and I would watch him and he, he did it this way he would put so many weights on and then he would do so many reps and he, was, he would do these reps and he would look at me and in the beginning it was real easy he would just do it real quick and get up and then he used to do this thing with his pecs where you know like the wrestlers the bodybuilders do where they do that yeah anyway <laughs> he dressed up as the Incredible Hulk for every Halloween he just liked to take his shirt off So, but the the first rep, he would do it with no problem. But by the 10th rep, he was really struggling and straining to push it up. And that was the whole point. That was the purpose, right? He's stretching the muscle out to its capacity. That's the word here. So you kind of get the idea of what Peter's saying. He's saying, stretch out your love so far that when you love, it hurts. Think about this in an athletic term. Love people to the point that it hurts you to love them. How many times do we hear people say, They're not worth my time. I'm not going to love them, forget them. I'm at the end of my rope. I can't handle them anymore. And Peter's saying, You better love people till it hurts. Amazing when you think about it. Love is an exercise. Do it till it hurts, keep at it. It's like sports. My coach used to make me hit the ball off a tee over and over and over and over in practice. I wanted to hit a, a real life pitcher and he'd make me go hit off a tee because he was teaching me the, the fundamentals. He wanted my muscles to learn, to learn what they should be doing in the swing. And I'm telling you, it felt so good when I hit that ball. Man, when I would stroke that ball and get on base, it just felt good. All that hard work, all that exercise, it paid off. Peter's telling you how to love. He's saying, love till it hurts. Keep at it. Keep exercising your ability to love. He's telling you to reflect God's love, and that means loving people who don't deserve it. Now, let me me help stretch you even a little more. I want to tell you this. There is absolutely no limit to how much you can love. There is no limit to how much you can love because some of you are hearing this, you're already thinking, nope, I can't. The Bible would say, yep, you can. You can. In fact, think about Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul said, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. How about 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12? It says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Here's my favorite, Romans chapter five, verse five. It says this, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The language there refers to filling up a bucket or a post so so full that it just keeps overflowing to the brim and over and over and over again. Wow. So when that person keeps hurting you, when that person doesn't care about you, when that person wishes bad things for you, when that person won't stop writing nasty things on Facebook about you, God's love is being poured into your heart so that you can never say, I'm done. It's enough. This person doesn't deserve my love, God. God's love keeps filling it up. It means you and I have a never-ending capacity by God's grace to love people because when you run out, he's got more to pour in and that's the evidence that you belong to him because you have this new capacity. So remember, love is a command in Scripture, but on your part, it's, it's not just a feeling, right? So that means it's a choice of the will. It's not only a command, it's your choice. And I'm not telling you to be taken advantage of. I'm not telling you to do that. Loving someone doesn't mean you have to take a beating over and over. It doesn't mean someone has to use you of all your resources. You can walk in wisdom and love people. There are times where you can be stern with people too. Skip Heidsick says this. This is how it works. Your decision is the engine. Your feelings is the caboose. And when you make a decision to show love, the feelings will follow. The feelings follow the act of love. Look with me at verse 23. It says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's why you can Love. Because you've been given new life. You were once dead to the things of God, but now God has awakened you to his things, right? You were, you who are in Christ because the Spirit has raised you from spiritual death. And now the Spirit has given you an affection for God that you did not have naturally. You were not given the potential to change. You did nothing to change yourself. You did nothing in the salvation process. It was all God. But you have become a changed person. So when you gave your life to Jesus, that was just the beginning. But here's the deal. God chose you. Like I said, you can't do anything to earn your salvation. The only one who does the saving is God. You didn't do anything that earned your salvation. But from the moment of your salvation, it became a joint effort between you and God. Philippians 2, uh, 12 through 13 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The message says it this way. What I'm getting at, friends, is that you should simply keep on doing what you've done from the beginning. When I was living among you, you lived in responsive obedience Now that I'm separated from you, keep it up. Better yet, redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation. Reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy and energy deep within you. God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. When God gives life to the dead, the Holy Spirit activates that seed and it can't perish. Okay? Peter says that all of this happens through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. You know what else this this verse tells us? (laughs) That the Bible in your hand is a living book. The word of the Lord lives, and it is a present tense verb, which means that it is continuously alive. Charles Spurgeon said that if you cut this book into a thousand pieces, every part will grow and live. (laughs) The Bible is a living book, it speaks in a contemporary relevance and power to every generation. That's why I don't care to change it. Because what was true 2,000 years ago is still true today. It's still the answer to humanity's problem. This is God's Word. I don't have to change it and tailor it at all. I'm standing here and I'm holding a book which is thousands of years old, and yet I know that according to the Bible, when I preach what this book has to say, it comes as if it were written this morning and it comes with fresh living power. This Bible is a living book. And, and here's the deal. If you're going to grow in love, you need to be nourished in your love. And this book, this Bible, this is, this is love food right here. <laughs> the Bible's a living book, and it can nourish you. Peter's point is God's word was preached to us, and it gives us life because he says it's an incorruptible seed. It's an internal seed. It's an imperishable seed. So the seed was planted in the heart. It germinated. brought forth what? Fruit. Fruit proves that the seed is there. If there's fruit in your life, it's because a seed has been planted in your heart. And the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Come on. There's no other word, there's no other book that can produce life that can save people when they apply what it has to say to their heart. No other book. So you get why we want to preach this every week. You get why we want you to know this. We get, you get why we want you to love this. You need to be students of it. This needs to be one of the most important things in your life. You need to prioritize time for it. This is important more than anything else in your life. This is what's important. In fact, look at verse 24 because it begins with the word for. Peter's giving you the reason to love, and, and he quotes Scripture here. Believers, here's the third insight. Believers need to live like they were dying. I know, it's a Tim McGraw song, I get it. (laughs) Verse 24 says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word of God is permanent and perishable. That's in contrast to the flesh, which fades. If you find your life in the approval of people, even when, when you do get it, you're going to find that it ultimately fades. If you go chase the approval of people, it's going to fade. If you find your happiness in how you look, that fades too. <laughs> As your body ages, you deteriorate, or you start doing... And then you start doing all kinds of weird things. I always get a kick out of Hollywood. All my crushes from my childhood, all my Hollywood crushes, they've paid all kinds of money to... To keep their body look their face looking the way it does, and some of them are more scary now than they were before they had all the surgeries. You start doing all kinds of weird, crazy things because you're trying your hardest to to let your body not fade, but here's the truth, it's gonna fade. No matter how much money you pour into it, it's gonna fade. Some people they'll 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 look to money. They'll soon discover you can't money can't solve your problems either. Some of you think your money and your success would be the key to a good life and you're looking at a ruined marriage, you're looking at your family falling apart because money can't fix it. You can go down the list of things that people pursue and chase and prioritize in life. Money, romance, sex, success. All of it though fades away but the word of God is a rock. I told you, Tim McGraw has a number one song, right? Well, it's not number one anymore, but it was at one time, and it's called Live Like You Were Dying. Well, here's the truth of the matter. You are dying. You're dying. Peter makes a comparison here between the word of God and between life as we experience it. He uses an illustration about the grass of the field and the flowers of the grass. He points out the fact that everything living we know in terms of our universe, is something that is in the process of dying. I've heard before, we're living in the land, or we're in the land of the living. The truth is, we're in the land of the dying. How about the, the saying, living it up? Well, that's kind of messed up, too, because in reality, we're living it down. We should live like we're dying because we are dying. We are like The flower, we are like the petals on the flower that begin to fade and fall, and they ultimately die. But in contrast to this, the Bible says that the Word of God is enduring. It continues to live on. Peter's saying, open your eyes. Everything you see here on earth is going to die. Only one life to live, and it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ is going to last. The word of God, it's permanent, and you've got to build your life on it because in the end, that's all that's left. It's all that's left. Close with this story. The Apostle John, one of my favorite apostles, when he was getting older and he was getting close to the end of his life, historians tell us that he really struggled walking he couldn't walk very well and he couldn't stand at all for a long period of time. And John is a preacher, you know, remember this. And so the churches were very encouraged by John in his later years. And he would travel from church to church and he would share. People literally had to carry him from congregation to congregation. But John was a pretty big deal. So when, when John was coming, and he was a big deal because the guy walked with Jesus, not only did the guy walk with Jesus, but he was known as Jesus' best friend. So whenever he would come to a church, there would be a crowd. People wanted to come, and they wanted to hear him. And in his last days, history tells us that John would only give a five-word sermon. Some of you are getting really excited. (laughs) Don't. (laughs) I can stand pretty good still. Five words. He would say, little children, love God one another that's all he said little children love one another can you imagine coming week after week or or chasing John around you want to hear what John has. this guy that has walked with Jesus that has done ministry with Jesus that was so close to Jesus he's called the best friend of Jesus can you imagine coming to hear him preach you just can't wait to hear what he's going to say and he looks at you and says little children love one another That's that's what he would say. And finally people started complaining, John, we want more. Man, give us something more. Give us us some meat. Give us a story. Tell tell us more. Can't you you offer something a little more? A little deeper? And John replied, The Lord's command is that we love one another. It doesn't get any deeper than that. Love one another. Jesus' command to love one another one another is still the most basic and the most difficult for us to do. But we can do it, and here's why we can do it. Peter says we have been set free, and we're a part of this new family, and we have this brand new capacity so that we can love earnestly. Are you stressed out to the limit, or stretched out to the limit, please? Not stress. Well, loving will stretch you out too. (laughs) Are you stretched out to the limit? Because here's why I got to say, he's going to keep pouring. And if you live that way, it's going to be a force. It's like God's love is a force. And that's better than any sermon you will ever preach to that world outside. Let me tell you, with all of this junk going on in our world right now, with all of this hate, with all of this evil, with all of this racism, this is our chance as a church to show this world what they desperately need, and that is love. Everybody needs this kind of love that Peter is talking about. It has the ability to change lives. There's a war going on in your soul. There's temptation, idolatry, unbelief. And I'm telling you, don't be enslaved to the opinion of others. It's going to lead you to more and more sin. You have an enemy. That's what Peter said here. And and his goal is the annihilation of your soul. He is working nonstop to make sure that he destroys your soul, quenching the spirit in the churches around the world. And here's where it happens. It happens to you in private. We're really good at being holy in public. We're good at that. And then we walk out those doors and we hate. You say, hate's a strong word. We definitely don't love. We have the chance to love. And again, I'm not telling you loving is accepting somebody's lifestyle. I'm not telling you that. And I will preach God's word all the time from this pulpit. I have no problem doing that. But in this room right here, if you have confessed Jesus as your savior, then you need to learn to love those around you. And we're all on different walks and we're at different levels. And I I, get—I tell you this too, love is being hard. I love my kids so I ain't gonna let him go play in the street because then he's gonna get hit by a car, that ain't love. So don't, don't misquote Peter here too. Well, we just gotta love and embrace everything, embrace every idea and thought. Again, Peter's telling you, you purify your souls through the obedience to truth. Don't get away from the truth. Don't let this world tell us what's true. We know truth, it's right here and it's purifying our souls, but it's gonna give us the capability to love. And Peter's talking about loving each other within the church, within the family. That's what he's talking about right now because that's where we struggle most of the time. Father God, I pray right now that you would give us that capacity to love, that we would become students of your word, we would purify our souls through your truth. And the truth is you are the only way to heaven. And the truth is you have standards to which we are to live by. You expect us to walk in obedience. You expect us to reflect you. So God, I pray that we would grow in our love for your word and grow in our hatred towards sin. But God, would you give us the capacity to love each other within this family of God, to love those that have hurt us those that have said things, those that have done things. God, would you allow us to love with that agape love? Fill our hearts. Continue to overflow our hearts with your love. That is my prayer for this church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.